What's up, everybody? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Brotherson. And uh, tonight, I have Kevin Egbert with me. Kevin is the owner of Moto Experts in Spanish Fork, Utah. I think a lot of you people here in, in the Southwest, if you're looking for suspension work or you need things done on your machines, I'm going to do you a solid right now. You need to go look. You need to look up Kevin's shop. It's themotoexperts.com, right, Kevin? Isn't it? Uh, we actually just bought the domain motoexperts.com. Oh my goodness! So, so, up. so is that is that why like is that is that why you don't have any money in your pocket right yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. I actually <laughs> talked to you about that a while ago. Hey, is this worth it to invest this kind of money? But oh wow! So it's just it's just Moto Expert, like just Moto Experts, right? Yeah, motoexperts.com. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Because it used to be the Moto Experts, and it's like having the Facebook, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, trying to shorten it, you know. But hey, and and Kevin actually, so Kevin is a very humble guy. I've gotten to know Kevin over the last couple of years. I can't remember when we first started to kind of do a few things together. I think it was probably, I don't know, it was probably the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. I want to say it was around December. 2018 when I reached out to you about it was when you had the CR250 project build and oh, yeah. your uh, 300 XCW. Yeah, one of the many. You were complaining about the front end being real mushy and diving in corners. Yeah, and you said, "Hey, I can fix that." And I'm like, "Who the heck is this Kevin guy?" Yeah. So I, I I do some Facebook stalking. I find out he's he's the owner of Moto Experts in Spanish Fork, Utah. They are a full service motorsport shop. Um, they specialize in dirt bikes, but they do all sorts of things. So street bikes, um, ATV sides, side by sides, I'll let Kevin kind of explain. I think a lot of this is going to come out as we, as we talk tonight, but, um, you know, full service type shop specializing in dirt bike suspension, dirt bike engines. You sell new bikes. You're a Sherco dealer, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, sell new bikes and used bikes. Um, I mean, this is kind of the whole nine yards. I've kind of watched it grow. Each time I go down to the shop, he's got a new face running around and, and he's got more, you know, they're just, it's just been kind of fun to watch, watch Kevin build his business a little bit as somebody from the sidelines. Um, he's moved his shop around as far as like, he's had to reorganize things. He has his dojo, his suspension yeah. dojo. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, slowly moved my workstation, uh, further and further away from the front door, uh, <laughs> creating more roadblocks for people to get to me. Oh, so if you if you come and visit the shop, uh, you likely won't see me uh, down in front. That'll be Cam or Michael or one of my other guys. Um, I'm usually busy upstairs working on suspension, but um, I still take calls and I'll come down and talk to customers if if he has to. I, yeah, I'm uh, on I'm on the <laughs> introvert side of the spectrum, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I still enjoy coming out and meeting and talking to customers and friends and uh, answering questions with suspension or whatever it might be. This is what I think is so funny is I believe that you're an introvert and I'm an introvert. And and it's like, how did we end up in these positions? Um, because because we, we created these businesses where, you know, face-to-face -face contact with people is relatively, well, in your business is probably even more important than mine. Mm -hmm. um, but here we are just, I'm in this basement apartment or basement apartment, my basement office here in my house in like a nine by seven room. It feels like it's probably more like 10 by 10 by eight, yeah, 10 by eight room. 
as I spread my wings out here. But I don't see anybody, and I'm pretty antisocial, and so I, I give Kevin a hard time about that. But I think it's been it's been good to, because your suspension little area workstation used to be kind of like right at the front of the shop, not like through the front like retail sales door. But yeah, it was the, by the big roll up door. And you were back. probably getting distracted a lot, like a lot of people just stopping and starting. Like, what was your? Why did you decide to move upstairs away from everybody? Really. Um, I mean, that was part of it. Uh, when I'm in the middle of laying out a setting or doing a set of suspension, the worst thing for me is to be distracted and have to walk away and then pick back up where I left off and hope that I didn't, you know, leave something out or, or miss something. Um, but the big part was just to open up the space downstairs for, um, we have four other technicians in opening up creating some more bays for them. And we had this unused kind of a, a dirty closet of a space upstairs. <laughs> uh, so we decided to utilize that. We built it out, um, put some walls in and some uh, air conditioning, which uh, is struggling to keep up at this point. But um, but that was the main reason. And then after the fact, I kind of was, I, I realized, well, how much of this has to do with me being an introvert and wanting to distance myself. And I don't think that was uh, the main motivator, but it was kind of a convenient uh, mistake or a convenient, you know, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, the other, yeah. Well, the other thing too, is it serves another purpose because um, it kind of distances you from, I shouldn't say distance, but it changes the perspective between you and your employees. It's like, uh, oh, Kevin is here. We got to make sure that we, you know, we're working hard because he's right over here. And it kind of, it's kind of like, is Kevin here? Or is he not here? I don't know. Is he in the dojo? Is he, is he at lunch? And I don't know. I just think from a, from a long-term perspective, see, one of the problems that we have as small business people, and you're a lot bigger business than I am, um, is you end up working so much and it's hard, it's hard to shut off and you feel like you always have to be there. You always have to set the example and, and you have to be the first one in and the last one out and, you know, in order for your company to grow. And I think just me from an outsider perspective, I say, I look at just the small moves that you've made inside of your business. And it's like, it's just kind of, it's just kind of one layer back where you're like, Hey, I am not going to be the face of this you know, service department, I'm going to be up here in my thing and, and I'm going to be doing um, the most important thing I need to be doing right now. But, you know, I'm not like setting the pace for if I'm here, if I'm not here. And I don't know, I just, I think long-term yeah. it's a great move from multiple perspectives. And it's just been fun to kind of watch, watch you grow and evolve with that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of use the term, uh, um, like I kind of force gump my way into things just <laughs> by luck. I've, you know, things work out. Um, so me moving upstairs, the reason I did that was, like I said, just to utilize that space and to have more area to lay out my suspension equipment and parts and whatnot. Um, but the benefit, one of the big benefits is it was like taking the training wheels off for uh, the rest of my employees. Yes. And uh, allowing them to have that space and not feel like I'm down there breathing over their shoulder, critic, you know, criticizing the work that they're doing or... Um, and then when I'm not there, it's not as big of a deal to them. Um, you know, they're able to continue working and it's not as noticeable when I'm not there. 
you just articulated exactly what I was trying to say. So thank you for saving me on that. <clears throat> that was, that was <laughs> take the training wheels off. That, no. Yeah. Taking the training wheels off and then just allowing the employees to breathe and to feel and to take more ownership. And yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what I was trying to say. And yeah. And there has to be a balance. I don't want them to feel that I like, I don't care and I don't want to be around them or uh, converse or work with them during the day. So uh, sometimes I do a lot better about going down during the day and checking in and seeing what's going on. Um, and then other days I kind of go upstairs and I don't come back down until, uh, you know, I head home. Um, but, uh, yeah, there has to be a balance. Do you just like pee in a bottle up there if you're going to, if you're going to stay up all day or like, <laughs> what's your secret? Cause I went up there. There's no yeah. bathroom. No, no. Uh, yeah, I definitely have to come down. Usually I'll come down and get lunch and use the restroom and catch up with people. Oh, my wife would smack me right now because she's like, you're always so literal. He didn't mean yeah. that he doesn't come down at all. And I'm sitting there. You say that and I'm just thinking about filling up Gatorade bottles or something. That's what I'm thinking about. What yeah. <laughs> well, on hot, you know, when it's been really hot like this and you're sweating and stuff, maybe we don't have to go downstairs so often to go pee. That's true. That's true. Well, and the other thing, so last thing, and then, well, not last thing, but I'm going to, I want to talk about your moto background and, and we'll jump back into the shop stuff, but I just wanted to give one plug. Um, when I was first starting out here in dirt bikes, um, you always, it always feels like you are worried that, well, if I have some work, if I need some work done on my bike, where am I going to take it? And who am I going to take my bike to if I need suspension stuff done? And it seems like there's, there's no uh, limit to all these companies that you can find online to send your suspension to. There's all these different shops, tons of different shops, tons of shops in the West Coast, tons of shops on the East Coast. And we, it seems for whatever reason that people have this notion like, oh, I need to send my suspension off to XYZ company and, that, and it's going to be so good and, and all this stuff. And I don't know, for whatever reason, it just seems like a thing that we that happens in this industry. I was so relieved to go to your shop and, and talk to you and start to see some of the work that you're doing and your employees are doing. And I go, this is a great resource to have in our area, in, in the Utah area. And it's been a major blessing for me because I'm like, okay, I, I can trust these guys. I've, I've learned that Kevin is trustworthy. He's honest. And what more, do, what more can I ask for than that? Does that mean that the suspension is going to be bang on the very first time Kevin is learning and he's fantastic and his, his, his guys are learning and you know, but nothing's perfect. But here's the thing. He is willing to do that follow-up appointment, which we've done multiple times on several different suspension jobs that you've done. And I think that is so critical. So yes, I think you should send your suspension to Kevin, but here, let me also plug this. I think there's a major, major benefit and Kevin might smack me for saying this, but I think there's a major benefit in dealing with somebody local to where you are. The reason why I say that is if you send your suspension off to, you know, halfway across the country to company XYZ, you know, if that company doesn't nail the suspension on the first try, um, yeah, you can send it back to them, but are you going to, it's going to cost this extra money, you know, in shipping and there's going to be this extra delay. It's, it might be a three week turnaround or something like this. And so, I mean, just put that in the back of your mind. It, you know, I tell people shop local if you can. If there's no one in your area, then I can give you a couple places that I think, you know, can do a good job for you. Moto, Moto Experts is one of them. But I mean, I'm telling you, if you're anywhere within a three or four hour drive of, you know, Spanish Fork, Utah, this should be 
the first place on your list that you look, give them a call, ask them, talk to some people, uh, because I think they do, I know they do a good job. They've done it for me several times and I'm just, I'm happy we have that in this area and hopefully everybody, you know, if you're in Florida, hopefully you have a suspension tuner or someone that you know and trust, uh, cause it makes a big difference, you know, yeah. in your writing. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, 10, 15 years ago, it's like you had the big three out in California. You had Pro Circuit and Factory Connection, Enzo, um, and you know a few others around the the country that you know you would have to send your suspension to if you wanted if you wanted it done right. Um, and uh, anymore, there, there's a lot more knowledge. There's uh, like I went to the the race tech school a few years back, and I kind of built from there upon my, you know, experience before that. And, uh, you know, we ride, we ride the trails here, we ride the tracks here. Um, so the, the areas that you're riding, we are riding also, and we know how to set up the bike in the suspension for, uh, for these areas out here. And like you said, if there is an issue, if you want it to be softened up or firmed up, um, or, or modified in any other way, it's not a one to two week turnaround shipping it back and then waiting for it to come back in you can literally just bring the bike back in we'll take the suspension back off pull it apart um, make the adjustments that are needed and give it back to you within you know a few days Um, especially if you have if you let us know that you have a ride or a, a race or something coming up we're pretty sensitive about that trying to get bikes back to customers well, yeah, that, and that's the other thing that I think you've done a good job is just trying to help build the moto community here in the inner mountain area. There's a lot of desert racing that happens here. Um, probably not as much motocross racing, um, but big time desert racing. And uh, I've, uh, I haven't yet gone to one of these races and watched you, but I know that it, I've texted you before and said, hey, you know, do you want to do this ride or whatever? And you're like, Hey, I've got this race. We're going out to support people in, you know, at the races. So talk a little bit about, uh, what, what does that entail? Well, I I feel like I have let you down by not, uh, fully pressuring you in and giving you enough lead time before these races. Cause that's something that we have to do before, uh, the year's up or next year's do a team race. Um, not to say that you have to race to, to know what's going on, but, um, it's definitely a fun experience that everyone should try to experience. <laughs> you say fun, and then I look at the I look at the p- pictures that you post, and I read it, these posts from people after these races are over, and they're like, "Man, I don't know why I'm doing this." Like, well, we're not talking about it during the race. <laughs> I mean, the last race I did was uh, at least a month or two ago, so yeah, it was a good time. Now it was horrible then, but like you're going to these races and you're supporting people with like, what do you, what do you, if you're not running in the race, what are you doing when you go there to? to offer support? Uh, a lot of times we, we do pitting. Um, so we'll pit for, you know, uh, you know, either Josh or Taryn or, uh, you know, some of the local pros that we help out or even the, you know, we, we do a lot of rider support, um, for other riders er- everywhere from peewee up to, you know, the pro class. Uh, we, you know, try to recognize our customers out at the races and reach out and see, you know, if I've done their suspension, asking and seeing if they're happy, if there's any adjustments that we can help them with. Um, and then uh, I, I have three boys, uh, two of which are racing. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. So tell me how you got started in 
motorsports? Like, is this a, is this, are you a convert to it? I certainly am. Like, let's hear a little bit of the background. Did you start out riding moto? Um, how old were you? What does that look like? Um, I wasn't going to share this because it's embarrassing, but I started on a four wheeler. <laughs> oh, I've done that. When I was six. Uh, we rode four wheelers for a couple of years and then we moved. And then um, when I was, I want to say about 10, uh, my dad came home with a trailer and a 1988 XR200 and an 88 XR100. So the orange tank, blue seat. <laughs> so the XR100 was the first dirt bike I had. That's not a bad bike though. No, it was, I, it was awesome. Um, you know, took it out, learned the clutch, ran into my brother a few times the first day. And, uh, it just kind of grew from there. I, I want to say it was like every weekend after that, we would go out and ride. My dad had a 88 KTM 250, uh, two stroke. Oh. He had to kickstart it on the left side. I didn't even know KTM was around an 88. They barely were. Holy cow. Yeah, it was uh, it was a unique bike. Uh, I remember my brother. We were riding one day, and my brother kickstarted it to. We were going to do this hill climb, and he went to go, and the bike started running backwards. Um, <laughs> so I, I've heard of that happening, but that's the only time in my life I've seen that. Wow. Um, so, anyways, I I grew up in the Bay Area in California, so we would go and ride Carnegie Hills, uh, Hollister. And then I want to say when I was closer to 13, 14, that's when um, I had a neighbor that talked us into going to the the local track. And I remember wanting to puke when I got there. <laughs> it, it was just a practice day, but I was so nervous watching the guys um, and then going out there. And I was, I was kind of just hooked. I never, I never really got into it raced or anything, but um that was what I enjoyed most. Wow. So you wanted to puke just because you were so nervous because of everything that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Uh, uh, if it's a new track and we show up and it's really busy and a lot of fast guys are out there, I'll still kind of get butterflies in my stomach like, oh, crap. These guys are fast. So is this, this must be why you're so much faster than me. Whenever we've ridden, you always like tone it down so that, it, so that I can stay with you. This must be because you've been riding since you were uh, knee high to a grasshopper, like every weekend when you were a kid, and then a lot of a lot of track work and a lot of desert work. You've, it sounds like you put a lot of time on the motorcycle. Then, at this point, you're, what your late thirties? Uh, thirty five. Turned thirty six this year. I, it's a good thing you're not a woman because I just offended you. <laughs> yeah, you're mid thirties. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's uh. Unfortunately, I feel like I used to ride a lot more as a kid than I do now. Um, I think that's normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I spend a lot more time working on the bikes now and fixing bikes. Um, so it's, uh, but I have had a lot of cool experiences and opportunities to go and ride, you know, some different areas. Got to go down to Baja last year um, for the 1000, got to compete in that, and then this spring we had another trip with the same group and I was able to take my dad down there to Baja. Um, kind of just a once in a lifetime, cool opportunity to go down and spend a week riding with your dad. Yeah, that is really cool. I had several groups and eventually I've got to go down. I've just got to buy a bike and find the route, find the right group to go with and 
go do it. Um, cause I've heard so many really cool stories, but it's, in, it's intimidating to think like, Oh crap, I've got to go to Baja and how am I going to get my motorcycle mm-hmm. there? And I probably need the right type of bike and, you yeah. know, and, and there's all these logistical things, but there's a lot of groups. Sounds like you hooked up with a pretty good group that knew what they were doing, had it planned out pretty well. Right. Yeah. So we did a, I mean, we have a customer we were doing a build for, uh, he had, he was putting a team together to race the Baja 1000. Um, it was, uh, Dave Hunter and Greg Godfrey and Wayne Schlosser and uh, a couple other guys. And then it was literally like two days before I'm going to drive down there to help, you know, pit support tune and test stuff like that. And Dave texts me and says, Hey, um, here's the plan. You're on, the, you're going to be on the second bike, the third leg. You're going to run miles 200 to three, whatever. And I thought it was kind of a joke. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't sleep hardly at all that night just thinking about um, just how sketchy Baja would be and, you know, the guys who have died down there. And just it, it's not something that I wanted to take lightly. Um, but I mean, once we got down there and got riding and pre-running, it was just out of this world. It was, um, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been to like Monterey Bay in California, but it's like riding the coastline, um, without having people yell at you or get pulled (laughs) over. But you know, everybody's so inviting down there and, uh, you know, great food and, uh, just the nicest people you can imagine. That's awesome. You'll have to take me next time. You jerk. Well, we're going the I think we're going back down uh for the um this year's one thousand. I think it's the fifty fourth and it's a point to point. So from Ensenada down to La Paz down on the Do they change it? It changes like from year to yeah, year? Yeah, yeah, it changes every year. Uh sometimes it's uh kind of a loop. So they'll start in Ensenada, loop down and then come back up the San Felipe side, and then other times they'll do point to point. Huh. I don't even know the geography. I'd have to pull it up. Yeah. It's a buck it's a bucket list thing. So I should put that on my bucket list to go do Baja. Or or just just do Baja or is it doing the race? Which is the thing that it, I need it, to put it, on the bucket it's list. It's kind of two completely different things. Uh going down for a trip, uh like Moto Mochila or UTMA, uh you know, there's Or Taco Tours. Or taco Tours. Mike Spurgeon. Mike. Yeah, Mike. Mike, um, Mike if Mike was here, he'd hit me in the head because he's yeah. like, Kyle, how many times have I invited you? And I'll be, yeah. Mike, sorry, buddy. I, you probably don't listen to this podcast, but if you ever hear it, sorry, Mike. I, yeah. I'm going to come. I, I got to put Mike high on my list. Yeah. Mike has it all figured out. I'm going to have to go with him maybe the first time. So, yeah. And as far as going down and having an enjoyable experience and just enjoying the scenery and getting to know the area, I would say like a springtime tour would be, you know, the way to go. Unfortunately, you don't come back from that with a finisher medal or like a trophy from competing in the Baja 1000. And that's, unfortunately, I still don't have a finisher medal. I completed my section. And, uh, unfortunately later on, one of the, the, the riders had a bad crash on the San, San Felipe side and the bike was done. Um, but the, the, uh, 50 and up group, you know, Godfrey and Dave Hunter and them, they did finish. So that was, that was cool. And they gave me a, a, one of their medals. So we hung that up at the shop. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's so, very good. Yeah. I'm glad that you're hanging it like your 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 happiness on hey, we, whether you we, got uh, the metal. Yeah, we built the bike that finished. So I guess there's something to be said for that. 
There is. There is certainly something. And you you guys took down an Austrian bike and a French bike, and which it, it was the Austrian bike that made it, right? Well, I uh, so both of the race bikes, uh, I competed in the Pro Moto Limited class on the 350 XCFW. And it's not, that's not my bike of choice because of the PDS and the, uh, just the geometry on that bike. I pre-ran the whole week on my Sherco Sherco. 450, which really kind of spoiled me. I was just in heaven on that bike and then getting on the 350 was fine. Um, but, uh, so yeah. And then Dave's bike, the, the bike that finished was the KTM 500, but this year we're, hopefully doing two different teams, kind of the Pro Moto 50 again, and then another Pro Moto Limited, both on Sherco's. Uh, so Sherco 500 for the Pro Moto 50, and then a Sherco 300 four-stroke for the Pro Moto Limited. Because, hmm. I mean, it, seem, <clears throat> it seems like to me a 500 four-stroke would be, man, I guess it would depend on the course and, and which section you were doing or whatever, but I've always felt like if I was going to go do Baja 500, uh, four stroke might be the bike to have just cause it seems like, uh, it seems like I've seen a lot of different, maybe it's just on the tours when people just go down for a little trip and maybe not so much the race, but it seems like you end up with significant stretches where it's just like, Oh, here's a dirt road. We're going down for hundred miles or something. But yeah. Um, and it's, you, you have to, you have to remember the whole course. It's not like a hare and hound race where you worry about being routed up some Creek bed or, um, you know, single track, the whole Baja course has to be, uh, bypassed with, um, you know, trophy trucks and they even have the class 11. I think it's class 11 where they do the, the Volkswagen Beetles. Oh yeah. Some of the stuff I like racing and riding on down there during pre-run. It's like, there's no way that these Volkswagen Beetles can go through this, but and they somehow, do somehow they still finish. Yeah. So the motorcycles go, they can't go at the same time as the trophy no, trucks, right? So the motorcycles, uh, they, <laughs> yeah, they start, they lead out with the dirt bikes like early in the morning, like two or three in the morning and then ATVs. And then there's a gap. Um, did you say three in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so your headlights. Yeah. Three so in the morning. It might, it might've been later. It could have been four or five. Um, oh. but it is dark. You're running headlights. Um, why do they send the motorcycles first? Just for the, to dust? give them a gap. Uh, cause the other guys are going to, well, trophy trucks are going to catch them, if, right? Well, if nothing happens, if you're, if you don't have any mechanical issues or crashes or get lost, the trucks shouldn't catch you. I know a lot of the Ironman guys, they, they have to slow down and they do the Ironman guys that run the whole race on the bike. Uh, most of them will schedule in like a couple hour stops to, to stop, eat and nap Hmm. and then get up and go again. But the, uh, the pro teams like the, um, the, they're usually finishing well ahead of the, and it kind of goes back and forth. Some years, the bikes, their overall time will be faster than the trophy truck. And then the next year, the trophy trucks will be faster. Depends on the layout. Yeah. Start, start to finish time. Yeah, yeah, because you could make a course that the trophy trucks are going to be able to go 100 miles an hour and the bikes can't, you know, or you could make it so it's more technical, tighter, where the bikes have an advantage. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing more terrifying than it if something happens and the trophy trucks start to catch you at night. Uh, it can be pretty terrifying, hoping, yeah. hoping that they see you and that your, uh, your light, your strobe light on the back 
And they do have um, transponders that are supposed to alert them when they're coming up on someone else. <laughs> but, uh, but you but, never know. But how much are they watching that if they're pushing as fast as they can go? Like, oh, look, there's a little motorcycle. It's going to be a exactly. speed bump. Yeah, and that's why you, I wasn't aware of any uh, fatalities last year. Um, <laughs> but usually there's, you know, something happens, whether it's a spectator or a competitor. Oh, this is, this is classic racer uh right here because he's talking to me about like well no one died the time i was there you should really <laughs> come and do this like i yeah. didn't die and i'm sitting there going i don't come back from a ride judging basing it on whether or not i died or not i came back i i judge it when on whether or not i had fun and you're oh. telling me you're giving extra credit to this racing experience because no one on your team was killed well, as a business owner, <laughs> you should appreciate the the value of risk and reward a little bit. You you get the greatest rewards from taking some risks, and uh, that, <sighs> that's definitely one of them. I was just listening today to an old interview with well, old. It was like a year and a half old, old with Cole Seeley, and he was talking about how much he hated racing oh, when he was racing. And I've heard Ricky Carmichael talk about how much he hates racing when he was racing. And I've heard insert insert every racer I've ever spoken to that tells me about how stressful racing is and how much they didn't like it while they were doing it. But then as you know, time goes on, you look back and you're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Well, and you got to take it with a grain of salt. I am not a career racer. I'm not a professional racer. I've never chased a championship or points. I purely do it for fun and... Uh, it's just a casual uh, thing for me, but for them, it's different. I mean, that's their career and they are somewhat forced into it as kids and they don't like, they just don't have a choice because they don't go to school. So it's not like they graduate Cole, with a diploma. Cole Seeley did though. He, he was, did. He was He's saying a that. Different story. He's like, well, I was in college and then I liked moto. So, you know, and I had a knack for it and stuff, but I was never fully into moto. And then, he just kind of figured, and I'm just learning this. I'm only halfway through the interview. It's on Gypsy Tales podcast, and it was like a year and a half old. But anyway, the point is, he was had a little bit different startup. In but I think you're right. I think a lot of the racers, you know, were kind of prodigies. They showed some results as a kid, and then dad pushed them so much, and they were homeschooled, and yeah, so much pressure. It's almost painful to listen to the interviews with Carmichael and just listening to his experience. And I mean, you could see that visibly with like. Villapoto, his last few years racing, he would win a race by a long shot and he'd be on the podium and he would just look upset. Like he wants to just not be there. Um, and Carmichael, he said his big motivator was he raced scared all the time. He never felt like, Hey, I'm the guy I'm going to go out there and win. He was racing scared. He was always terrified of being beaten. Yeah, so it was a relief when he would win. It wasn't gratifying. It mm. wasn't satisfying. It was just relief. Okay, that's over. I didn't lose today. Yeah. You know, and that sounds so horrible to me. And I think I think that's how I would be. I, I'll never be, I, I was never good enough. I don't have enough skill in this sport. But I, when I hear things like that, I can relate to that. I'm like, I wouldn't be relishing in the wins. Even, even yeah. guys like Caleb Russell, uh, you know, GNCC guy, Kind of towards the end of his career, I, I listened to an interview here, you know, a year ago or so, and they're like, "Hey, you're going to come back and do like your ninth season in a row, winning the thing," and and he just kind of had that. He's he well, just kind of started to get that pressure, and expectations are put on him. Totally, and and so there was all this pressure on him, and he's it didn't sound like he was having any fun, you know, and he, I don't know, but it's it's one of those things, and I guess it's always in the middle of something, 
because I want to get into it a little bit more with your shop and everything, but how, how do we find joy? This is a, this is a, this is a, I don't know the, what's the word. It's not, it's the question, rhetorical question. Uh How do we find joy in what we're doing in our life right now in the time there? It's so easy to be, I hear this all the time from like parents or, you know, people, grandparents or whatever, they'll be like, we'll enjoy this time now because you know, you're, there'll be a time when you'll miss it. You know, mm-hmm. I think the same thing could be said with these racers. I'm sure some trainer or some dad told Carmichael or, or Reed or whoever, Stuart, uh, you make sure you enjoy it now because, you know, this time is going to, you know, be gone and, and you'll, you'll miss it. And that's probably true. It's probably yeah. true in everything. But sometimes it's really hard to enjoy it in the moment because you're just doing everything you can to not drown. Like that's, right. how, that's how I feel as a parent, as like this small little business owner, people are like, oh, you must have the best job ever. And, you know, and hmm. I get people saying must, like, must be nice. You, yeah, must be nice. <laughs> and, I, and I think, I feel like I'm in the pool. I'm um, like my feet, it, it's, almost, it's almost like my feet are tied together in a swimming pool. So I can't, I can't tread water with those feet. So all I have is my arms to try to tr- keep my head, head above water. And then somebody hands, and like every day, somebody just re- walks over to the pool and hands something to me and says, hey, hold on to that for a second. And so now I'm holding on all this stuff, trying to still tread water. And it feels like every day or every year, some, I keep adding more and more weight and I'm just barely keeping my head above water. And even though... I understand that I probably should be enjoying this part of my life more. I'm like, all I'm trying to do is not drown. Right. You know, uh, does that, uh, does that resonate with you at all? I know we, we cut, we went straight from racing into like life and business and whatever and families, but does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, 100%. And it's, uh, it's kind of a big reason why I've, I, I've slowly migrated at the shop from where I was, um, where I was maybe doing suspension 50% of the time and then the other part of the time, uh, you know, working on, you know, doing engines or chassis or wheels or whatever it might be. Um, And I decided, you know, I really enjoy focusing on one thing. I enjoy the suspension. I enjoy learning more about that. And uh, because I enjoyed it, I decided, you know what, I'm my own boss. That's what I want to dedicate myself to. And, um, it, it's kind of evolved from there. And I found that, um, kind of removing all those other things, not worrying about doing wheels or diagnostics or engines, um, it really removed a lot of stress from me, um, and got me into a creative, um, I guess, zone every day where I was able to, um, think outside the box and use, uh, more creativity and, uh, and, educate myself um but 100 percent, i i've had the same experience where people come by the shop and they they say oh wow you know this place has grown so much since the last time i've been here and you guys are doing so awesome and in the back of my head i tell myself there that those are just flat out lies like there's no that's not true like we're not we're doing okay we're growing and we're getting more business, but it's not all blue skies and rainbows is a business owner ever. Um, people outside of the business don't see everything else that's going on. They don't see employee turnover. They don't see, uh, you know, uh, comebacks with, uh, you know, if we have an engine issue on an engine that we rebuilt or, um, you know, 
business related things. Um, and then aside from that, we have families, you know, we have kids, we yeah. have a wife and a lot of, uh, responsibilities there. So you find that we're spread so thin and, uh, there's not much left on, on the bone at the end of the day sometimes. Yeah. And then you have a, this friend who invites you to come over and come to your house at seven thirty at night and, and then record a podcast for who knows how long. And yeah. meanwhile, you haven't seen your family since yesterday. Hey, I, I thought I, I just came up here to buy a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I, like sometimes my house feels more like a dealership than, than anything. Yeah. You're, yeah. I've got several bikes you could probably, you could buy for me. We'll have to, do, we'll have to talk about which other ones you should buy from me now. Well, you know, oh. Kurt, Kurt Caselli says, do something every day that scares you. So, uh, how did that work out for Kurt though? You know, yeah. like, well, all respect to Kurt, but. You know. I, I think the message behind that was to push yourself uh, and to take yourself outside of the comfort zone. And uh, like that book I shared with you earlier in the year with uh, The War of Art. Um, yeah, it's around here somewhere. That's one that I think comes to mind every day, um, just the resistance that we're fighting. And um, But that's, that's a big one for me is uh, the uh, communication and meeting with my my uh my team with my uh employees every day that's that's not something i look forward to i i usually want to get into the shop put my head down get to work start uh you know laying out settings and doing some suspension work um but i found that by pushing myself to do those things that i resist it it tends to add a lot more value to not just the business but to myself in pushing myself to um you know, learn to, um, you know, accept those difficult things in life. Yeah. The book that, uh, Kevin shared with me is the war of art. I was trying to, it's sitting here in this office. I actually listened to it and then I bought the book on Amazon saying, thinking I was going to go through and underline it and it just sat on my desk forever. And I think I probably cleared it off my desk today to pretend to Kevin that I'm not like a hoarder or like I, I know how to keep myself organized. Now I'm looking yeah. for it and I can't find it. It's but been a minute since I who, listened to it. Who was the author again? Uh, Stephen Pressfield. Yeah, that's he right. He was uh, like a screenwriter. A writer, right? Yeah, writer, author. Um, but one of the, and I'll butcher the quote, but it, it's something to the effect of the, the more critical a, uh, um, the more critical something is to our personal growth, and the more resistance we're going to face in pursuing it. So whether that's, you know, working out every day or working on your communi- communication skills with your employees or with your family members or uh, educating yourself, going to school, um, if, you use, if you use your resistance as a, as a compass on a daily basis, that tends to bring you to a, um, you know, a higher level head into the resistance. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I'm going to listen to it again. I listen to it on audible. Um, you know, that's good. So Kevin and I have a book club. You, you should, uh, you should, you should continue to suggest books. I, I have, I have other books in my, I have David Goggins in my yeah. reading list. I did that one. He's a hard one to listen to. Uh, he, I, I get it, but I, but you also like, I need a little bit of balance in my uh, life. It's very, it's pretty <clears throat> exaggerated. I mean, I get it. And he's that, that's the he's the extreme version. He is an extreme version. Um, I kind of have to take a break from 
I'll listen to like a self-help book like every now and then, but I have to take breaks and I'll, you know, listen to podcasts or uh, I've been on kind of a Stephen King kick. Dude. So I'm just looking through, this is kind of embarrassing because my, my pot, my um, audible list here, there's, there's some self-help books in here. There's some wellness books and, but I've got, what I was going to say is it's embarrassing because there's a lot of fiction in here because at times I'm like, I just need to shut off. And so I've listened to fiction, but I, I have two Stephen King books in here. Oh, which ones? So I've got Pet Cemetery, which is <laughs> yeah. really dark. Yeah. Peter C. Hall narrates that one. The Dexter guy. Is that who this From is? Dexter. Yeah. And then, and then there's, um, the other one that I did was 11, 22, 63. I haven't listened to that one yet, but my, my yeah, brother Michael, Grant Michael Hall, yeah. keeps telling me I need to listen to it. It's long. It's like 32, 33 hours. I've, I've been listening to, it's kind of a trilogy. It was, uh, Mr. Mercedes, uh, and then Finders Keepers and End of Watch. Do you, do you listen to these while you're up in the dojo? Is that where you're yeah. getting all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. My, uh, so Michelle, my, uh, She's the office assistant downstairs. She knows if I'm listening to Rogan, if I have like an AirPod in, because I, he'll, the conversation will be fine, and then he'll go off on a tangent and just a lot of a lot of, lot of potty obscenities. mouth. Yeah, just bad language. Yeah, but, I uh, I really appreciate the podcast that I can listen to with my family around, but yeah. Rogan is one that I have to put a, an AirPod. There's so much in. good information in there. Yeah, and it's funny too with Joe Rogan because it depends on who he's talking to. If he, if he, because sometimes he kind of is really clean with his language, but if the if the other guy he's with slips one out at all, then Rogan just goes off, and it's yeah. just like, no, but that's so. that's cool. I didn't know we were Stephen King fans. Yeah, I guess the, those are the only two books um, out of Stephen. But yeah, I guess back to the, uh, I guess more of the business end of things. I. Uh, Two, three years ago, I started to kind of hit a wall with stress and just trying to figure out how to manage the stress because I'd get home at the end of the day. And the last thing I wanted to do was talk to Christina about everything that was going on and, you know, stressing me out or upsetting me during the day. So I would kind of keep it in and it would never come out. So, um, based on recommendations from multiple people, I decided, Hey, let me give this a shot and, you know, try going to therapy. And, uh, it was super helpful. And I mean, I, I haven't been for a while, but, um, one of the books that she recommended was quiet. And I don't know if, and that, that's kind of when I learned, Hey, I guess I'm an introvert because everything that they're talking about is, uh, exactly how I feel in these social gatherings, not wanting to small talk. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was really helpful for me just to learn how to manage, uh, manage stress and how. Is this by Susan Kane? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of has the big red Q on the cover. The power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of uh, good examples of uh, introverts. I'm going to put um, that on my wish list here. Who you wouldn't ever think that they're introverts, like public speakers, um, or I guess like Al Gore was an introvert. Kind of not a great example, but... um, He invented the internet. Did you know that? Yeah. (laughs) And global warming. Yeah. Um, No, that's cool. It's funny that you say this um, because I, I also have seen a counselor therapist in, in the last couple of years, two or three years, 
and I'm also in the same boat as you. It's been a while. Like the COVID kind of broke that little stretch that I was having. Um, but that's been immensely helpful for me. And I feel like it's, um, I remember years ago I was at a, a different job and there was this uh, girl woman that I was working with and she mentioned that she was seeing a therapist and in my head, like, I, Oh, what's wrong with you? Exactly. I, and of course you're I didn't a, say that, yeah. but in my head, I'm like, Oh, you're a head case, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking that, um, and then, you know, fast forward years later, and I was kind of at a point in my life where man, everything, the wheels were just coming off mm. and forced me kind of, I, I don't know if I'd say rock bottom, but at least for, at this point in my life, it was the the rock bottom of my life. And and then I got into, you know, saw a couple different counselors and, and the tools and things that I've learned through that have been really, really good and beneficial mm. to my life. And I'm okay to come out and say, hey, look, yeah, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, not every counselor is, is great. And they're not all created equal. And you need to find somebody that you, that you can relate to, or at least find somebody that, you know, can tell it to you straight. It's been, it's been hugely beneficial for me and my wife and our family. And, you know, so I, I appreciate you being vulnerable, yeah. vulnerable enough to share that. And I feel I've kind of done a twist in my life where I'm like, this is strength because to me, the 10 year ago, Kyle Brotherson would have said, well, you know, that's weakness. And I'm just like, when now I feel like when a man is strong enough to show his weakness, that that's like the true strength. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're confident enough in yourself to be like, Hey, look, you know, this, this is something I've been working with and I'm de- dealing with. I mean, and you show your vulnerability. <sighs> yeah. Well, and I, I feel like there's just a lot of value in um, sitting down with someone, you know, therapist or not, somebody from a completely different walk of life from you. Um, I know in our community, a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm going to go, you know, get my throttle therapy and they go ride with their buddies who are also very like-minded individuals to themselves. So yeah, you might go out on a ride like we've done and you'll we'll talk about stuff and life struggles. But it, it's kind of an echo chamber where we're just sharing the same exact ideas and getting the same feedback. But you go to a therapist or a counselor and they'll offer you some very helpful tools and insights from a different walk of life, different perspectives that, um, you know, you're not in tune with. And it, it becomes really helpful and it helps to make you a more well-rounded person and, and give you some tools to deal and cope with, uh, stresses and, uh, you know, issues that might come about in your life. I like that taking you out of the echo chamber. Cause that's one of the, one of the side effects of social media that we've gotten into in the last, however many years is we get into these, we get into these siloed rooms, yeah. so to speak, these echo chambers. Well, if someone says something you don't like, it's typical to, well, I'm going to unfriend them or I'm not going to follow them. And, uh, yeah. And, and then <clears throat> over time, the, the algorithms kind of like figure out these things where it's like, I'm going to put this person with these like-minded individuals. And it, it either gives you, it either, it gives you exactly what you, what it knows that you want, or it go, it gives you exactly what it knows is going to get you to engage and get you pissed off. Uh, and then you, we really start to divide ourselves a lot. But I like this idea of, you know, one of the benefits of seeing a counselor or a therapist is to actually get feedback from a totally different perspective um, than just this echo chamber, you know, that you might get from your, your buddy or whatever. Right. That's interesting. And that's true. Yeah. It, I love it. It's been a, 
been really helpful for me. And I, I have a lot of friends on Facebook that I don't share anywhere near the same political views or worldly views or, you know, otherwise with them, but I love being friends with them so that I can see their perspective and under better understanding their side of the story. And sometimes it takes me out of away from, you know, my far end of the spectrum and I'll kind of settle in more of a middle ground. Um, and I feel like most of the, our country at least would benefit from doing the same thing. Uh, maybe climbing out of their echo chambers and being open-minded enough to hear the other side, the other argument and seeing the values and, um, just having an open discussion. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, and I'll butcher the quote, I don't know. I don't even know who gave it. The, the person I'm thinking of is Eisenhower, but I could be wrong on that was just like, um, basically the idea was you've got the far left and you've got the far right and, but the only usable space is in the center. It's kind of like a highway yeah. on a highway or a freeway or whatever. You have the usable space, all of the usable, usable spaces in the center. And if you're on the far right or the far left, you're in the gutter. Well, you know? the, the middle the middle ground doesn't make its way into, uh, into the news media. It never has because so, it doesn't sell. It isn't, yeah. it isn't sexy and it isn't, you know, if it, they say if it bleeds, it leads. And, mm-hmm. and all of our media, whether it's through, you know, traditional media like Fox, you know, or ABC, NBC, you know, and then CNN, NBC, MSNBC, Fox, these types of things, all those, those are profit. Those are for profit, like they're profit corporations. Mm. You know, they have to make a profit and they make profit through advertising. And then the same thing with these, these uh, social media companies that we talked about before, Facebook, uh, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, all of them, they're all, they all are businesses owned by private individuals who have, beliefs and there's censorship here and there and left and right and center. And yeah, but at the end of the day, and I've gotten to the point where I don't even, I try not, I try not to purposely consume news. I don't go to news sites and you know, because I just, I get so worked up and I'm like, how is this really benefiting it's me? It's like, it's like watching a live feed of being stuck in traffic. <laughs> yeah. It's, you can get frustrated and uh, upset and stressed out, but at the end of the day, there's very little that you can do to get out of it. So um, I try to pay attention to what I have control over. Which is exactly it. And and moto, dirt bikes, this is one of the things that I've loved. It's just how it's this world that I can escape into. And maybe I created my own little chamber because I... I don't really know what's, I don't know as much of what's going on in the world anymore because I've created this little utopia of this dirt bike thing that I've, that I've magically and accidentally created mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe you to a, a similar extent. So I wanted to ask you, like, if you, if you could ride, um, you know, motocross or mountain single track or desert, what is your jam? How, what's your perfect day look like? If you're going to be on a motorcycle, dirt bike, what, what does it look like? Is it moto mountains, deserts, man, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to dispute, you know, going and riding like a Glen Helen on a Thursday morning where everything is like perfectly groomed and fresh and awesome. But then riding signal track after a good rainfall, I mean, or in the springtime. And I mean, it's like choosing between two kids or two <laughs> kids. Uh, you, you kind of have to have both same discussion with, you know, whether a 250 two stroke or a 454 stroke, you, 
for me, you kind of have to have both. Um, but uh, I grew up, uh, like I said, riding Carnegie and uh, Hollister Hills, so these big OHB parks in California that uh, I really have zero interest in going and riding those areas at this <laughs> stage of my life. But at the at that time of my life, that's all I knew, and it was awesome because it was the place that I could go and ride this dirt bike. Um, so living in Utah has really spoiled me. Um, having the mountain single track, having you know Jordan River and Mountain West, uh, the motocross track uh, down in Mona, and then having Cherry Creek, and uh, you just get so much diversity. And you know, hot days like today you can go up and still find some good shade and not uh, overheat, you know, going up and riding some single track. Um, that being said, I, I've been more, I mean, I've been more focused on off-road. I, I haven't touched the track nearly as much as I'd like to, um, but uh, it's challenging for me and uh, and it's enjoyable. It's fun to go out and kind of watch your lap times and, improve upon that and learning new techniques. And then, and then you can watch the, you know, the national events on TV on the weekend and kind of see not that there's any comparison between how I ride or how like Dylan Ferrandis is riding right now. Um, but you, you tend to pick up on little things and, Oh, that's a cool technique. I want to try that. Or, you know, that that's really different what Dylan is doing versus what, uh, you know, Roxon is doing. Um, so, uh, the bench racing, I enjoy the motocross. When did you finally, when did you first realize that Dylan Ferrandis is, is your spirit rider? <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on the mullet uh, to match his. Uh, I just feel bad for him. I Like we were at that. You feel bad for him. He's leading, he's leading the points yeah. in the outdoor right now. He's won three out of four races and, and you four, three out of four overalls and you feel bad for him. I, I don't feel bad for him right now. Uh, a year and a half ago, when he uh, when he <laughs> when tried to murder someone, when he there was a, a homicide at the Anaheim one Supercross two Anaheim two with uh, Christian Craig. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's such it's such a bummer in our sport in this country. If uh, if the roles were reversed and it was Craig taking out Ferrandis, we'd give him a pass. A I, don't more. Th- I don't think Craig would have been booed off of the podium. <laughs> uh, I but I mean, we have movies like Talladega Nights to blame for that. And uh, but it's funny we have foreigner like no. I don't think that there's any more loved writer at the moment than like Jet Lawrence. If he was French, that wouldn't be the case. But no, he's Australian. I thought you were going to mention Ken Roxon and, well, and, the, and the Same fact thing. And, and the fact that you just said Jet kind of knocked me off my horse. And then I'm like, wait, they're both foreigners, and and they are the most. You can't not. You can't tell me right now that the most popular rider in the 450s is not Ken Roxon. Oh, ju- for sure. He just well, is, and he's German, but he's the most Americanized German that has ever existed. I but, think there the a lot of the talk has been about. Tomac, but yes, I think Roxon is the most loved 
you know he's the most beloved univer- yeah universally liked rider in the 450 class and and then and then in the 250s it's freaking jet lawrence it's yeah. this it's this little it's this little kid who's like six, 17 years old and he's just taking the world by storm and i don't know what it was i don't know if it's his personality but i remember thinking at the end at the end of this last supercross season where he i mean he just has this finale it's this east west finale thing between and he's there with his brother hunter and jet are on the podium and they're like razzing each other and all like I, I, this is kind of dumb to say, I, it's not that I was, I almost wanted to cry. I'm like, you're watch. this is so special right in front of us. Mm. And I'm just like, these two kids, if everything goes right, these two kids could be the face of this sport for the next decade. And it would be, it would be awesome for the sport too, because our sport has struggled with growth because there's just not enough personality in the sport for yeah. people to get behind. You don't have, it's like NASCAR people would you know, leech onto their, their racer and they would be racing for, you know, I don't know how long NASCAR racers are in for, but it's a lot longer than motocross guys. I mean, motor professional motocross racers have a very short shelf life. So by the time they start to get traction and people start liking them, it's like they're on the tail end of their career. So it's, uh, and that, and it's kind of a, a reason why I, I do like Cooper Webb. I don't like him for his personality, but I like him for the diversity and for the racing that he brings to to the sport. I mean, if it wasn't for him, then it would have just been, you know, Ken Roxon pulling away with a championship and not any controversy. But the fact that Cooper Webb on multiple occasions could catch Roxon on the last lap and... <laughs> yeah you know, point the finger at him over the finish line. I mean, that's not my style. That's kind of a, a not a cool move. But Jet Lawrence's style is to flip you off over the finish line. Like, because he oh, did that to, to Moseman. Moseman. Yeah, to Moseman. But this is all good. It's all fun to just see the personalities coming out. Yeah. Well, we, we kind of need to create our own version of the WWF. Like, <laughs> we, we, we need to inject some more drama into the sport. And unfortunately, that's what sells. Well, but also... And we need more Aaron Plessingers too. Exactly. Did you, there was a podcast. Um, it was actually on the gypsy tales. Um, Jason was talking with, uh, Oh, what is his name? Daniel Blair. Oh, okay. Did you hear that podcast? Uh, I don't think I did. Okay. So reading like assignment, you got to go tomorrow I'll, on the dojo. I'll read it. Not read it. You got to listen to it. So to it's it. Daniel Blair and it, he's talking. Well, I mean, Jason oh. with gypsy tales is talking. I think his name is Jason. Man, yeah. I hope it is. Because I'm not going to go back and edit this, but but, but uh, he's talking to he's talking to Daniel Blair, and Daniel Blair has this really great idea. We just like we got to get the helmets off these guys. We need to see their faces. Yeah, he's like we need to. Everyone needs to know who these people are, and we need to be sharing more stories about Jet Lawrence, more stories about Hunter Lawrence, more stories about Ken Roxon with this, you know, with his family, you know, with his wife, Courtney and, and his son who I can't remember. And we need to know more about what's happening with these people off the track and what their personalities are and more Aaron Plessinger walking around with his cowboy hat on yeah. and more of this stuff, take the helmet off because he's like, that's the only way we grow this sport to mainstream. He was saying, look, if you're already into motocross, you know, you can, you, you love the racing and everything, but he's like, he said, my wife and my mom, I think he's who he was saying, they're now interested in, in motocross because of Jet Lawrence, because the kid pulls his helmet off and he's like, you know, got the long locks and he's showing personality yeah. and he's, he's making fun of his brother 
on the podium and they're wanting to see him and he's sitting there. Remember, remember we were sitting, it was you and I, right? We were sitting at Supercross, just one of these last ones. It was in the warmups. It yeah. was like, we got there for practice and you get all these 250 guys and they're all like as stoic as can be. And then you had Jet, Jet Lawrence like dancing. He was dancing like, he, like he needed, pee. yeah, like he needed, but he's just so amped up and he's just so excited. It's, it's either he's amped up or that's just extreme ADHD. Something, but the point is you get to see, he's showing more personality than than the rest of them kind of combined exactly and this is why he's going to be big it's why he's being beloved right now who knows if he can keep that but i just i do i do feel like motocross right now is we've it's deeper than it's ever been i think yeah and i don't i don't know that the class has ever been deeper than it is right now and it's it was funny this last weekend my uh for red bud i was really hoping that Plessinger would pull off the overall. He he led for a lot of it. I know. And uh, it was funny. My dad, uh, he he was saying, wouldn't that be cool if he, uh, if he got the overall at Red Bud against the German and the Frenchman? They could make a sports movie after that and call it one on the 4th of July. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, they say he's like the, the good old boy. And he's like the Red Bud uh, mascot or whatever. They were kind of playing yeah. that all up. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely a character. I, I watched the video a few times of him getting the whole shot and just looking looking back at the competition. Oh, he did. Yeah, and it, it wasn't like a taunt look back. It was like a look back, like to make Holy sure. Crap, guys! I got the whole shot. You know, like he's excited yeah, about it. Yeah, like he's just stoked to be out in front. And I, I don't think that there's a guy on the line that he races with that you know can't like him. Yeah, who's who's uh, I man? All the names are eluding me. The the announcer is uh, uh, Jason Wygant. Jason, why can't I think of it? Wygant. I should have that in front of me. I remember it was either Wygant or Langston on the broadcast. I watched it the next day, and there and here you have Plessinger. He goes out and gets the whole shot, and they're like, "Is he going to bust out Larocco's leap on lap one?" And like, sure enough, the kid pulls it. He like just rips it. He rips it, and then Kevin rocks and rips it right behind him. Yeah, or, and then maybe oh, Tomac, and it was like. But, oh, but did you see the Dude, one? The one Roxon, I, I was afraid his arms were going to fall off. He hit the when uphill he cased on that. that. Like yeah. what was the towards the end or middle of Moto Two or something? Well, yeah, I uh, I can't remember if it was Moto One or Moto Two. But Can you I, describe Larocco's leap to uh, to the listeners here? So even, a lot of my a lot of my listeners don't know motocross. So Larocco's leap is uh, this super iconic jump at Red Bud, uh, named after Mike Larocco. He was the first one that jumped it. Um, but it's this super gnarly uphill triple step up that you just have to like all out. Like you, there's no checkup. It was never designed to even, it was supposed to just like go up to the table. You were never supposed to go all the way over it. Right. Uh, I think they did. Well, I, I don't know the full history on it, but, um, the first time that they jumped it, LaRocco jumped it, um, he actually jumped it from off the track, so he um, came from of, came from like the of, gate, the yeah, like the fence or something. Yeah, or from the fence. So instead of doing the long, the sweeping left hand corner and then hitting it, he just kind of went out by the gate and then hit it straight on. But it's a gnarly jump, and the the thing about it is, the last couple of years they've made it super difficult to jump by just adding a lot of sand and soft loamy stuff and rollers in that corner before so it's hard for the guys to get dry uh, enough drive to hit it um and usually 
you have about three quarters of the 450 guys, and then at the top, like five or so 250 guys that will hit it. This year, the and, 250 guys didn't, no one hit it, did they? Uh, I think in practice, there was a couple, but during the race, I don't recall anyone that was hitting it. Um, but anyway, but I know all the, all the factory teams at Redbud, they, they bring spare wheels, you know, down to the pits just in case they, they come up short and they blow out wheels and they have to swap them out. Um, but watching Roxon during that moto come up short, like it wasn't just a little bit short where he landed on the knuckle on the top. He, he landed on, on the, the face. He landed on the face, like the front of that landing and it, like bounced and then landed down on the bottom. And the whole time I'm like, he just like broke both of his wrists. There's like no way that, and he, I think it was Ferrandis or something. Was right behind him. Was right behind him. Yeah. I'm like, well, he's going to get blow right by him because that that would shake me up. That would shake anybody up to case something that hard and then have to regain your composure. And he somehow was able to just turn that off, hammer he, down, and he wrote like, pissed. Did, yeah, he didn't lose any time after that. It was super impressive. Um, and that I mean that's been super impressive to me all year watching Roxon. I know that for it's kind of become a Ferranda show, but. Roxon didn't come into the outdoors with a ton of confidence. It's like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see where it's at. I didn't race last year. They didn't do a ton of testing because he was chasing the 250 or the Supercross championship. And he just came out and was super solid. And um, fitness hasn't seemed to be an issue for him. I mean, super strong start to finish. But uh, Ferrandis is just on another level. Yeah, and for <clears throat> for those of you that don't know, this is Ferrandis's 450 rookie career. So yeah. he he raced in the actually he raced yeah yeah, yeah. He, he raced he, 450s in the, in Supercross, but this is his rookie year for 450. He, he's not he's not a young pup though. He's 27. He oh he, I mean he he raced uh, MXGPs over in Europe for With several four, years in 450s, and then he went back to the 250s here and he got in the he US. got spanked for a few years by hurlings, and uh, and then he came over. It's kind of scary to me because it seems like the stuff that they're racing in Europe is just rougher, nastier than what we're riding here. And it seems like if you grew up riding that stuff, you should be able to come over here and walk through the field in, in the outdoor stuff. Yeah, and that's a big reason why I think America is going, going to face a challenge and doing well at donations again. Just It's a different animal. I mean, over in Europe, all the all the guys that we compete with at motocross the nations they ride moto all year long there's no supercross so that's their number one focus it would be like me trying to become the very best at suspension when i'm doing suspension and engines like half and half yeah like you can't you can't compete with both disciplines well, isn't it also too that they are they they just ride no matter what? It seems like here in in the U.S. if it if it rains or it's muddy, they don't ride. Whereas, and am I right? Am I right on that? Whereas, yeah. if it's you're in Europe or whatever, you you're riding today. It doesn't matter what the weather is. Whereas, yeah. a little less of that here. Am I right on that? Yeah, and the tracks are so much different out there. They don't have the same. I mean, they have a lot of the same equipment, but they just don't. Like they'll run for weeks without grooming the tracks. They'll just get super gnarly deep ruts. Um, they have gnarly sand tracks, and then their tracks are way out in the middle of nowhere. So it, it's not 
it, it's just a completely different world for them. They're just hardened. Yeah. <laughs> They're hardened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, guys out here, they, they like showing up to the track, you know, in the morning and, uh, enjoying the chocolate cake groomed sweepers and, uh, you know, burning in their own lines and ruts. And then by the afternoon when everyone starts burning in the track and cutting in lines and you start to get chop, it's like, Oh, okay. Tracks broken down time to go home. (laughs) And, uh, it was funny listening to David Villeman. He's the he's Ferrandis's trainer, and Villeman was a uh, Supercross motocross. Uh, he was on Team Yamaha here, that uh, like ten fifteen years ago. But anyways, he trains Ferrandis, and um, he was saying that Ferrandis wanted to show up to train at Glen Helen like Thursday morning. And Villeman's like, "No, we show up in the afternoon. That's when we start training." And uh, if you've ever ridden Glen Helen, those long hills, they develop the gnarliest, uh, they're like breaking jumps, like coming down Mount St. Helen. And, uh, but that's, that's what they do to become the best. They train and they, all they do is ride the gnarly and the nasty stuff. That's awesome. No, I, I love that. I was <clears throat> nothing specifically with rocks in this last week. I thought for sure that like, okay, he's done. He's just going to fall back and he's going to fall into like 25th. He hangs on. And the fact that he didn't, and you're right. He's not the, he came in with, you know, quite a, his confidence. He didn't seem like his confidence was that high. He didn't race outdoors last year and he had just, I don't want to say gotten spanked, but he kind of like had Cooper Webb kind of Cooper Webb kind of steal the thunder from him down the stretch and Supercross. And he probably had all these a million questions. And then the thing that I can't figure out about Roxon is he appears to be like a sprinter in Supercross, even though Supercross is more of a sprint anyway. And then you go out to the outdoors and it's two 30-minute motos, which doesn't sound like a sprint to me. It sounds like more of an endurance thing. And yet here he is. He's Well, he's won, what, three outdoor titles? at this i mean in his career hasn't won one for a little a little bit i think he he's won uh one 450 outdoor title when he was on the suzuki um and then didn't and he then have a couple 250s. i thought he had i thought he had three total on the 450s and one in the 250 but maybe i could I'm be wrong, wrong. yeah I, I could be wrong there because i think he ripped off at least two and then tomac kind of did his run of three in a row and then in 2020 yeah. we had josh i mean not josh zach osborne and now this year, I mean... Who won in uh, 2016 when Tomac uh, wiped himself out? I think that was Roxon. That was Roxon. Or, or maybe it was Dungey. Dungey might have won that year. Yeah. Might have been Dungey. Dungey, it seemed like Dungey and Roxon were trading some back then in the outdoors. I know Dungey broke his back at the end of one of the seasons, towards the end of one of the motocross seasons, but... I think that was one that Tomac got. But uh, yeah, it's been, I haven't gotten as much into the summer, the summer, the, the outdoor seasons and mostly because I'm so busy in the summer, but, but uh, you suggested that I watch one of those races the other a couple weeks ago. I high, think it, yeah. High point 450 moto two. <laughs> when if you had, you're not familiar with motocross that that's a good one to start with. Cause you had C and Cirillo and Ferrandis and Roxon three they wide. Were, they were all just going at it. And that was the race where Tomac came out of nowhere and just he, decided to be the Tomac yeah, of old. Yeah. Because the first three motos of the season, he was just sleeping like outside the top 10. And then he came out of nowhere and got first. Sounds like he's, he's done with uh, the green Gowie. machine, yeah. right? He's yeah, moving he's over to moving the, to Yamaha star Yamaha team or something like that. Yeah. It'll be interesting because Ferrandis is going to be there and it sounds like Plessinger is going to stay. So they're going to have three riders. 
Yeah. They're going to take on three. Mm-hmm. And also, you being the motor wizard that you are, explain to me how here last week at Redbud, Redbud, explain, <laughs> explain to me how Star Yamaha on their 250, how they had like three engine failures like or something like that. I mean, they had, they had, did you hear about this? Like multiple yeah. engine problems on the 250 team. I, uh, I didn't hear what the specifics were. Um, but I mean, engine failures could be anything from an electrical issue. In fact, the Yamaha guys have bad PTSD from that, uh, from several years ago. I think it was Cooper Webb that he, uh, he was a did not start for a moto because they washed his bike in between the motos and then there was some kind of an electrical short and so now even at supercross you don't see the the yamaha guys washing the bikes they just wipe them down with towels yeah they try to just spit shine them um but i i didn't see they talked about it i was watching i was watching the motos because i I, I I skimmed the moto the 250 motos you're not even a true fan i know see i watched those and they were they were talking about it they're talking about how you know it was uh Colt Nichols, oh. Colt, Colt Nichols. He's off. He's a uh, DNF in Moto One or Moto Two. He's on a 250. He's on the Star Yamaha team. He just won the flipping championship in yeah. Supercross, East or West. Can't remember which coast he raced. But then he's out there. He's off in the pits and DNF because his motor like they just yeah. pushed it back to the Let pit. Go. Well, it was. I uh, can't remember if it was High Point or the round before that where uh, RJ was leading Hampshire. Hampshire and his chain broke. <laughs> and then uh it's like i've never in my life broken a chain well the 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 so, flip side of that though is they'd say well you've never and same thing with me like we've never ridden at the level that they're riding and my counter to that is okay but i'll put 100 hours on my chain <laughs> and you're putting you can't put at 30 12 minutes on yours and i can put 100 hours on my motor yeah and you can't make it run for 20 30 minutes yeah i'm like i get it you're riding harder than me but I also want to know why these bikes are so important and why everybody's salary is on the line and we're dumping millions of dollars in this race team and it won't run for 12 minutes. You know what they should what they should do if Yamaha wants to do themselves a favor is take a stock bike and throw the kit suspension on it <laughs> and have them ra- have Plessinger and Ferrandis go out go out and race the stock bike and you know what and still get a whole shot the result the same result would happen they they'd st- they I mean I don't want to But the problem is you have so many contributing sponsors to the team where they they need to see their you know that their piston is in there and that their sprockets and that their chain and their tires the piston is already in there though probably i mean it's probably (laughs) nobody knows it's probably vertex or whatever i mean who else makes pistons it's already in the freaking bike i don't know yeah it's definitely interesting to watch but uh i i agree it's though i will say i have i have seen we've had customers bring in Brand new bikes, not Sherco's yet, but, you know, some other bikes off the showroom floor where, you know, they've had some catastrophic issues right out of the gate. Well, my thought is if you haven't had a bike failure, you haven't ridden long enough yet. I mean, it's just going to happen. There's There are lemons. You know, people put things together wrong at, at factories. It doesn't matter what color. I, I think... My feeling is, and maybe, and you should chime in on this. My feeling is most of these motorcycles, regardless of who makes it, are pretty darn good. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there are bad apples, you know, here and there, but it just feels like to me, so doesn't matter. Sherco KTM Beta, Gas Gas Husky, 
these are some really phenomenal machines for for the yeah. most part, right? Well, yeah, you wind the clocks back 15, 20 years, uh, especially around the time when the four strokes were making a push and coming out. I mean, you had you had guy like factory riders where their carburetors were popping off like on supercross tracks, not because the clamps weren't tight, but from backfiring it was blowing the carburetors off. Um, and, uh, so the fact that right now the Suzuki is getting all the hate because it's a kickstart and because it's a few pounds heavier is pretty ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's priced way below what, you know, the KTMs and Huskies are. And if you were to take a couple grand that, uh, you know, the $2,000 or whatever that you're saving on the Suzuki, you could put that into doing your suspension and the engine and getting the bike set up for you uh, and be that much further ahead. But um, it definitely seems like nowadays people nitpick. And a lot of a lot of that's the magazines. You have like motocross action that they, you know, they'll, they seem to call out a lot of, little tiny things that shouldn't really be issues. But, uh, I hate anybody who's ever reviewed a dirt bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are some there, you know, there are hacks out there on the internet that don't have any credentials and only started riding motorcycles like 10 minutes ago. And they're out there reviewing motor dirt bikes. Did you know that happens? Yeah. And their first dirt bike was probably like a four fifty. Probably. I'm I'm looking I'm looking on RMZ 450. I can buy one right now for eight thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars. I guarantee you can pick up an RMZ 450 without a deposit. You know that's pro you know probably true. The problem right now is it's hard to find any motorcycle because they're all sold. And so what I'm doing I'm trying to get bikes, and you just call all these dealers and you ask how long the wait list is. Right. And how long's your how long's your deposit list? How, is it got we, you got twelve people that have already paid for the paid for motorcycles or what? We we have close to like thirty deposits on Shurkos right now, just waiting on the twenty twos to come in. Cam uh, was telling me the last time I was in there, he was trying to buy get bikes from from uh, Europe. He's trying to buy all the motorcycles that you know didn't get picked up yeah, in Europe. Yeah, we were oh the Shurkos. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, I mean, we've brought quite a few in. A lot of the bikes that we've brought in this year have been, you know, bikes that other dealerships have backed out of. Um, we we were pretty excited. Our uh, Sherco rep told us that earlier in the year that we were the number one uh, Sherco dealership in the U.S. And I think in the last couple months we've been bumped to number two. I think it was. Uh, How does that make you feel? I'm okay being number two in my second or second year selling Shurkos. Um, not as good as being number one, but what's your, while we're on the subject of Shurkos, what is your favorite Shurko? Uh, and, it's like and, choosing between kids again. And by the I, way, I just realized why Dylan Ferrandez is your spirit animal. It's because you, you, you have an affinity for the French. The French. Now, now that you're selling a, a French product, mm -hmm. you know, well, we have to. You are so Muscan. He's he's like your second, like your. Uh, you're more of a Ferrandis type guy, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think that either Muscan or Ferrandis would be super entertaining to hang out with. I think at a dinner party. I think uh, Plessinger would be fun to hang out with. Uh, Roxon, not Tomac, not Webb. Uh, 
But yeah, the uh, if I had to choose a Shurko, if I could only have one, I would say probably my my two fifty. 250 the SE, SE 250 factory 250 SE factory yeah and it's just such a good well-rounded bike for here in Utah I mean it's got the six-speed transmission so you can go out and you know you're not going to be limited on your top speed necessarily but it's still very playful um you get that two-stroke the um you know the hit in the mid-range you still have really good bottom end like you like you would enjoy on the KTM 250XC but you know it comes with the the KYB suspension on it you don't have to do anything with the air to you don't have to pay 1500 bucks or whatever to get rid of the air forks you're such a hack you're just sitting here complaining about all these other bikes i love i the <laughs> one of my favorite bikes was the husky the TX300 no, I'm with you on this though. I haven't, I haven't ridden the. Actually, I might have ridden one of your I a bike that you put together for. It was 250 SE, but you were putting it together for somebody who rode a lot faster than me. So technically, <laughs> I think I have ridden yeah. this. But I'm with you to say, I people always ask me like, what would your bike be? And the one that I've, the one that has worked the best for me is a KTM 250XC. But if I was going to go Sherco and you said you have to ride this all year long, even though I haven't owned this bike, that would be the one I would key in on because of those exact things that you just mentioned. I just love the 250. The 252 stroke to me is the perfect all-arounder for what we have here in, in Utah. You can do desert. You can do mountain. You could moto this bike. Yeah. we got to talk I moto do. in a minute. Yeah. I, I, that's the bike that I do moto. Um, we uh, the, only, the only discipline that I, I wouldn't, really care to have that bike in it would be baja and just because of the fuel situation having to carry your premix and having to you know deal with that um because they're not they're not tpi they're not uh oil injected it's total premix which for for some guys it's a huge thing i prefer i mean it's it's hard for me to say because we see all the blown up uh, TPI bikes. We rebuild a lot of the TPI bikes in 90, 90% of the time, at least it's because of the oil pump failure. That doesn't mean that it's a common occurrence, uh, you know, with, or like it's a pandemic with the, the Austrian TPI bikes. Um, but the biggest thing we've noticed is if they're running an off brand or a different injector oil or, a oil that's not made for inject in, injection then uh you tend to clog up the lines yeah. and uh foul out the, the pump um but if they're running the motor x the injector oil they tend to not have as many problems yeah i haven't had any problems with mine i've had like 15, 14 15 of them and i've got between me and my riding buddies we've got over two thousand hours on these bikes and haven't skipped a beat uh, not even so much as a fouled plug but mm-hmm. i mean that things happen but that's one of the nice things about Sherco and Beta right now is they Beta has some of their bikes that are oil injected. Yeah. Um, I heard a well, and to finish that point is I think that Sherco is is smart to stay off of fuel injection and and it gives it gives another reason uh, to buy a Sherco because it's different than KTM. It feels like ten years ago KTM everyone you know it was cool to ride KTM and then everyone kind of moved over to KTM and then it be it it became mainstream and so now it isn't cool anymore. And now there's this up and coming company that's been around for a long time. They've probably been around 
25, uh, 30 years. Since the 90s. So they've been around they for... They started in the trials. Yeah, a long time, but they, they're like the cool kid on the block right now. It's, it's yeah. the cool kid, and they're riding the wave, and they've got some really good riders. I mean, same thing could be said of Beta, but I, but I feel like KTM rose... It, a high tide raises all ships, mm-hmm. and I feel like they're, you know, KTM raised the bar with these things, and then it's really... It's awesome. We've got Sherco, yeah. we've got Beta, um, Gas Gas, it's kind of a, a KTM now, but but still, there's so many options that we have that we didn't have that weren't even, you know, commonplace yeah. 10 years ago. It's awesome to be in dirt bikes now. And I, I really hope that the Japanese manufacturers will follow suit somewhat with, you know, what KTM and Sherco and some of the other Beta have been doing, where they they manufacture a specific model for like specific disciplines yes you know yamaha has kind of halfway done that with like the yz250x where they add you know in a wide wide range fifth five speed transmission kickstand 18 inch wheel but it, it's not nearly to the extent and then you know None of the other Japanese manufacturers are still producing the two strokes other than, you know, Kawasaki's making the small, the KX85s and the... And the 65. 65s and one, I guess it's a 112 now. They're doing a super mini. Um, but it's... Uh, so many bikes. I'm just, I'm here on Sherco, uh, Sherco.com, and you just, you just look and four stroke bikes. 250 SEF factory, 300 SEF. And these are all enduro bikes. Mm-hmm. It is enduro slash cross country bikes. Four strokes, you got 250 SEF, 350 SEF, 450 SEF, and the 500 SEF. And then in the two strokes, you've got a 125 SE, 250 SE, 300 SE, 250 SE. I, I guess I guess you've got the 125, 250, and 300. And, the, and you can either yeah. get in the factory or just the base model is what you have. And they have some really fun um, kind of play bikes that... Uh, they were kind of playing with uh, importing a few of them last year, and we were able to bring in a couple of them, like the TY. Uh, it's kind of like a cross trainer. T one twenty five TY yeah. long ride. Uh, yeah, oh, there's, well, there's one, an adventure, and then a long. There's ride. a four stroke one twenty five, and then there's a two fifty or three hundred two stroke, which is like a cross trainer. Um, in, I mean, th- those all sold the second they hit the showroom floor here. They've got. I mean, there, there's good demand for them, and they're big in trials. I yeah. bought. I bought this. Uh, I have a Sherco. I got the top of the line. I can't remember what year it is. Nineteen uh, or twenty. I think it's a twenty. I bought this trials bike from you. I I play around with it in the front yard and in the backyard every so often, and it's it's incredible. I my main <clears throat> my main reason for doing it is I wanted to see if I could. T- I had the base level, still do, the base level uh, gas gas trials bike. And you had this, you know, top of the line Sherco yeah. trials bike. And part of me, I'd seen it in your, sh- I'd seen it, I've eyed it in your showroom a few times and then had this idea. Like, I wonder if I bought these two or I had these two bikes, if I could see, if I could tell the difference. Yeah. It's completely lost on me. Like a hundred percent. Like it is, I can't do anything on the Sherco amazing bike that I am no better on on yeah. the gas, but I have noticed that my clutch. I got to bleed my clutch on the gas gas because it's like way harder to pull. the The clutch on the Sherco is butter. 
Yeah, and there, I think it's one of those things where the more experience you get in the trials uh, discipline, the more you start to notice the little things. Well, with, I'm sure you know the brakes and the clutch actuation and the the suspension, especially the the engine characteristics and the. It's really interesting watching these guys ride the trials bikes, and it's literally backwards from how you would ride the dirt bike. Where if I'm going to go up a rock face on my dirt bike, I'm going to you know, rev the motor and then clutch it and kind of stay on the power feathering the clutch to get up whatever the obstacle is. And on the trials bike, you watch them and they rev the bike to the moon. And then on deceleration, they pop the clutch and they're just using the rotational mass from the crank to but I feel carry I, them up those obstacles. It's crazy. But I feel like the, the best guys in enduro are doing that on the enduro bikes is too. That, that's the like, big reason one of the big reasons why cody webb switched from ktm over to sherco was because he was on sherco he's allowed to cross train and use the trials yes. bike yeah it, it, and it makes so much sense and that i thought i thought when ktm bought gas gas i thought a big part of it is so that they could like hey now all of our all of our enduro guys can ride these gas gas trials bikes and yeah. and be seen riding them because it, it makes sense to me yeah. that they would. I mean, yeah, I would uh, think so. Well, like they a, did that TLD Gas Gas uh, um, video launch with Bam Bam in the beginning of the year with the trials bike and stuff. That was pretty cool. I didn't see that. I'll have to yeah. go look that. But so back to the shop. I mean, tell tell me what? How did this whole shop come about? I mean, we've we've kind of danced all around it, but um, you weren't you didn't always have this dream of opening up a motorcycle shop and a suspension shop. How did that happen? Uh, a lot of, uh, I, it kind of hard to pinpoint, but it, it was kind of like a snowball effect. Um, or if I think, I think a big part of it was how many, uh, rough jobs I've worked in the past. I mean, I went to school for mechanics, automotive, um, while also, I was always busy doing side work, um, you know, for uh, dirt bikes. And it was always a passion. It was always something that I talked about. And I was always trying to get, I, I guess, especially my family, trying to get them to, like, approve and say, hey, yeah, that would be a good idea. But I come from a very conservative background. Um, both my parents worked full-time jobs most of the time when I was growing up. And I was kind of raised that, you know, you need to get good grades in school so you can get a good college education and find a good big company to work for with good benefits and retirement and, you know, set yourself up to have that stability. Um, and anything outside of that was kind of outside of the comfort zone. Um, but upon graduating, moving down here to Utah and just, I kind of fell into working, you know, manufacturing maintenance. And, uh, I worked for an automotive manufacturing company, uh, for a few years and it just, I never got that fulfillment. I never felt, um, yeah, I just never felt fulfilled or happy with what I was doing, all the hard work that I was doing. And I, I never felt like it was noticed or appreciated. Um, and, uh, it, it kind of was just on a whim. I, I was looking at uh, shops in the area that I could potentially lease, and I found one uh, for a thousand bucks a month. And 
after talking to my wife and uh, we decided to take the gamble. Look, it's a one year lease. It, it, the worst will be out 12 grand over a year. And uh, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I can always go back to work in a full-time job. Um, so once, and I kind of started with the mentality of this will take some time to build off of and get it to the point where I can sustain and support my family. And uh, I want to say it was around March of 20, February, March, 2016, when I moved into the shop, started working and uh, um, I started buying bikes from auction in California, bringing them back, fixing them, selling them. And uh, these people who were buying the bikes from me were looking for a good place to bring their bikes to have them worked on. And so uh, they would bring their bikes in. And before I knew it, I was just buried. Um, you know, I would get done with my full-time job during the day. Um, I'd get off at four, drive down to Spanish Fork, and then most nights work until midnight and then go home, wake up five go to my job at six and it was just an ongoing thing. And it, I got to the point where I had to make that decision. This isn't sustainable. I'm burning the candle on both ends. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not fair to my, my employer. It's not fair to, you know, my family and, you know, my customers. So we kind of had that discussion and decided, you know what, let's just jump in and give it a go. So I gave him my, gave my, my work uh, is kind of, I guess, a one-month notice or so. And uh, I, time never went so slow counting down the days until I could, you know, until I left. And once I made that leap, it was kind of nerve-wracking leading up to that. Like, oh, geez, my benefits are going to fall out. I won't have health insurance this, you know, after this date. And then... Once I started working at the shop full time, it was, I, I didn't even have time to look back and wonder if I made the right decision because we were always trying to figure out how to manage and how to handle all the, uh, the business that was coming in, whether it was engines or, you know, suspension or just buying and selling bikes. Um, and it kind of just built from there. Um, but, uh, just lots of hard work and, uh, having all those crappy jobs that I had before to motivate me to ensure that I did everything that I could to make sure that this would work. I mean, when you're starting a business, it's, it's the worst time to, you know, slack off or, you know, try to be lazy. There's just no room for it. That's incredible. How did you develop the confidence that you needed to jump into this full time. I mean, I, I, you shared it a little bit where you said, okay, I was, I started the shop. I was working, you know, I was doing double duty. I was pulling those hours, but at, at a certain point you had to, the, this virus had to enter your mind to be like, hmm. I need to quit one of these things. What was it that caused you to quit the one, you know, quit the job with benefits and quit the mainstream way the way, the conservative way that, you, and not even that you were in that exact path that, you know, you were taught, you know, from your parents and things, not even that you were in that exact track, but what was it that pushed you over the edge to be like, I'm going to risk this and I'm going to go for it? Honestly, I, I wouldn't have made, taken that risk if it wasn't for, uh, Christina 
in just believing in me. I've always kind of grown up with the mentality that there's always somebody smarter or more talented or just better. Um, I was never, I never got the best grades in school. I was never the smartest one in class. Um, so that really affected my kind of self-esteem and my, uh, just confidence. Um, so it was, it was really interesting when I started the shop and started to, you know, kind of gain a customer base where, you know, these customers were coming in and just telling us how, telling me, oh man, this is, is so much better coming here to your shop than going to the, you know, the big dealerships. I just feel like I matter when I come here and you know, you know me by, by name and if there's an issue, you're going to take care of it. Um, and that, that was really interesting. It was something that I, I wasn't used to in my full-time job. Like I never really got recognition unless it was like, Hey, we need to pick it up here. We need to change these things or, uh, you know, uh, so it was a combination of that. Christina telling me that I was smart and doing a good job and that I was doing things the right way. And then having customers reaffirm that to me, uh, really inspired me to keep going with it because, all growing up in school, that wasn't ever anything that I I got a taste of. Like I never got report cards and had the teacher say, "Wow, Kevin, you did the best. Like you're the you're number one student, or you know you got the best grade on this test." It was always, "I wonder how bad I did. I wonder if I got the you know the worst grade." So, um, just uh, obviously, dirt bikes has always been a passion for me, and you know starting out it's like well this is my dream um like there wouldn't be anything cooler than making this work and so that was a a big driving force for me just because no matter what it what kind of business it is that you get into you're going to have hang-ups you're going to have issues whether it's business related or otherwise uh and you just need to be be prepared for that and you need to have um you know the motivation and the mindset that when you hit those obstacles it's not an excuse to give up it's just an excuse to double down and uh work twice as hard and to not take no for an answer how do you know when it's okay to, okay to quit though because i mean there there comes a point where you might just be banging your head against the wall or you might be um you know, th- there would be some, there There could potentially be, I listened to Jocko podcast quite a bit where he talks mm-hmm. about, um, you know, you know, what does he say? Man, I'm, I am like, I can't even come up with anything tonight. I have all these thoughts in my head, but I can't articulate them. But yeah. like, if you're at what point do you realize, okay, this is the way I think I needed to go. And you just keep beating your head against the wall. Is there a, is there an inflection point where you realize, no, I need to pivot here or how have you, what, what types of things have you noticed like that in your business where you had to, it wasn't working the way you wanted. I mean, you even said you need to come up with plans. You need to be prepared for when times get tough. Have, do you have any tricks or any things that you've noticed that you've done in your business where you, okay, I know I'm up against an obstacle right here. I need to pivot. Can you think of something like that? Yeah. If, you're, if your goal is to grow your, your business, your focus needs to be to find the right people that you can grow with 
and people that you can rely on. Um, if, if you're going into it with the mindset of this is just going to be a one man show, I'm going to do everything myself, then you're almost in some ways kind of setting yourself up for failure because you're not are you allowing, talking about me. No, <laughs> it sounds you, like you, you are. You have, uh, <laughs> I mean, you have people that you pay to help and, Oh, that's but like, that's it, like, a, that's uh, like a brand new thing. Brand but new. You, you, <laughs> your house isn't filled with, you know, 80 to plus bikes, customer bikes that you, you personally need to work on it, it different kinds of businesses. But, uh, it's, uh, yeah, one, I mean, one of the difficult stages is when we move from my 1600 square foot shop into my shop now, which is 4,500 square feet and you know the 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 rent went up tr- you know three times as much uh and then i was also paying the lease on both shops at the same time for a few months until i could find someone to take over my old lease and um so those were months that were really stressful because we were you know bleeding um i didn't have as many mechanics as I have right now I had one other mechanic and then around that time is when Cam uh, started coming in and helping part-time uh, with customer service and uh, and whatnot and uh, so that I mean that was really stressful and um, again we just I, I had to remind myself that giving up is not an option and looking at the ways at what ways we could you know um, find another good mechanic or a good way to restructure things to make things more simple or more profitable. Last year was really interesting. I was worried. Um, that would have been 2020, right? Yeah, last year, 2020. Um, my my older brother works at Disneyland, and uh, they obviously had to shut down, and he was furloughed for about a month. Um, so I kind of took advantage of that and had him come out here and his background is in manufacturing and engineering and uh lean and laying things out processes and you know everything that i'm not great at so he came out and helped us to relay out the shop and uh incorporate like trello which i see you're using here on your computer and just um implementing some tools that would help us to maintain uh order uh, and to improve our organization as we grow. If you lose organiza- your order and uh, lose track of your processes, you're going you're gonna to start spinning your tires and uh, going backwards. That's amazing. But, uh, but yeah, that, I keep bugging him. Like, I know Disneyland's fun and everything, but uh, you could come out here and just work, work with me. <laughs> Disneyland versus, versus yeah. motor experts. Although it, it sounds, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, dirt bikes is, is kind of Disneyland to me, which is a yeah. per, which is which is a kind of a segue into my next question here. Um, and and I I'm not going to keep you too much longer. I've I've kept you too long already. Oh, you're good. But um, how do you how do you balance? Um, you know, now you're in this. You you have this living. You've created this company, um, and you're married to it. You know, I mean, literally, it's it's this company that you've built. And it's taken, I mean, it's amazing, but how do you balance it so that, uh, you still find, you can still have joy in moto or dirt bikes when 
it's this whole thing that you're eating and breathing every day. And it's, you know, you're, you have profit and loss statements from it and you have, you know, accountants and taxes and, and employees and all of these things. And it all stemmed from this passion that you had for dirt bikes and moto. How do you maintain your passion and your joy and your love of motorcycles when you're surrounded by, you know, this, I don't, it's not a monster yeah. that you've built, but this thing that you've built, I'm, how do you balance that? I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You kind of, you're on a roller coaster somewhat where it sometimes you you just kind of get burned out with it. And the last thing you want to do at the end of the day is go ride a dirt. And it sounds stupid, but the last thing I want to do some days is have to wash my bike <laughs> and fix it, you know, get everything adjusted and dialed back in because I go and ride it. Um, but it, it kind of ebbs and flows a bit. Um, fortunately I, I still love going out and riding. Um, and, uh, I feel like I get pulled. I'm always being pulled multiple directions. I always have opportunities to go and ride. I have opportunities to go, you know, to different races or to do other cool things. Um, but I kind of rely on, um, the win, uh, can't remember what book it was, but it talks about the acronym win, uh, which pretty much means what's important now. Um, oh, yeah, and that. that, and for me, that's always the same. And it's my family. Um, I mean, and I still take, you know, I'll still go on trips a couple times a year. I'll go down to Baja for a week or so, or I'll go on a weekend trip. Um, but I, my priorities revolve around my family and um, doing what what is most important for them and for us moving forward. Um, and that's a big reason why I haven't taken the racing seriously. Um, when I started the shop, I in my mind I thought, well, I have to, you know. I should take racing more seriously and train and, you know, give myself more credibility as a shop owner, you know, to go out and be one of the fast guys at these desert races. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I won't be able to do my job if I am always broken or, you know, crashed or, and it, and it takes my attention away from my customers and from the business. If I'm focusing on, on you, on me and, racing and uh you know doing that that kind of thing and um a good example to me is kind of watching um the dynamic with the knights like mike and his boys josh and uh kobe and benji and um in talking with mike i mean and he's crazy fat i mean he beats he can easily beat me and uh and, and Mike, I, I Mike is the father. He's like he's 50 the, Yeah, he, he's some. 50 something. Um, sorry, Mike, if you're 40 something, <laughs> but you're crazy fast. And, um, but talking to him, he, he, he laughs whenever I talk to him about the challenges that I have, like, man, I'd love to go and race. And, but when I race, I feel like I hit a wall because my fitness isn't there because I don't ride enough and I don't get to spend enough time on myself developing, you know, my, my craft as a racer. And uh, because my focus has been more on my kids and getting them to the starting line for the peewee races and making sure their bikes are, 
you know, good to go and that, you know, whatever. Um, but he, I mean, he didn't really start racing and taking racing seriously until his boys were older and, you know, at an age where they were more independent and where, you know, he had that liberty to, okay, they're, they're good. So I can go and race now and you don't have that weighing on your conscience. So, um, I kind of think of that as maybe my, uh, your path, my pathway, the, the Mike Knight pathway. That's amazing. I, I look at the Knights and I need to get Mike on here and I want to get Josh back onto the podcast. I know he's preparing for ISDE, but I yeah. feel like the more I learn just bits and pieces, I learn about the Knight family here in Utah. They, re, they remind me a little bit of the, uh, Manning family in the NFL. Mm-hmm. I, I may, yeah. may, maybe that's a big stretch because in the Mannings, uh, in the, it's in not the, a stretch with, for... with, with, with the Mannings, like they've, they were all quarterbacks and two of them won Super Bowls. And so, but at the same time, I look at how they've kind of structured their family and, and the dad's good and the sons are good. And I'm like, that's really cool. Yeah. And it, it's, I, I've gotten to know them all pretty well over the last few years. And you never know about somebody until you really get to know them. You don't know how much of that might be superficial and what's kind of behind the scenes. But after getting to know them better, it's, I mean, they're some of the most genuinely nice, authentic, just people. They go out of their way to help. Um, and uh, And they're all crazy fast, super talented racers. I mean... Josh, I think this is his fifth or sixth ISDE that he's going to. So, um, yeah, just a super impressive family. And, you know, they're good people to look up to as examples and um, try to learn some things from. Yeah, fun, fun people. Well, I've talked, we've talked our ear off. We only made it halfway through our, uh, our little outline here. So we'll have, we'll have to do it again sometime. If we, if we cut the politics out, it would probably, uh, Hey, we were just talking. That's what, that's what these are supposed to be. They're supposed yeah. to be, a, see, we didn't get to all the boring stuff. I was going to ask you about, you know, the challenging parts of your shop and more, most rewarding parts of your day. But I feel like with, I feel like we covered it and I, I appreciate, I appreciate you coming over. I started this outline to do this podcast in January of 2020. So it only took 18 months to book you and get you over here. So I'm, yeah. Well, it says a lot. I mean, has it gone what two hours? Hour and f- yeah, an hour and forty eight or so. So so that's more talking than I'll do all week. Yeah. Well, Christine is going to be mad then if if I just got all the talking out I, of you and yeah. now you don't say anything for a few days. She's going to be pissed at me. I'm just going to be winded when I get home. <laughs> How'd it go? Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> like, I'm going to bed. You'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> just just listen to the podcast. I don't have to tell you. It's, he recorded it. Well, the good thing is though you were very complimentary complimentary of your wife, which which yeah. is is because she's a, she's an amazing woman and you've been married long enough to know you've got to put in multiple plugs, you know. Yeah. But, I don't I don't do it enough on a daily basis, but she does everything behind the scenes. Our kids are very high I don't want to say high maintenance, but they have a lot of you know, just Energy. different challenges and, and, and needs that need to be addressed on a daily, weekly basis. And she does that all. And I mean, if it wasn't for her, I, I wouldn't have the bandwidth to run the shop and, you know, but I mean, Cam and Michael and uh, it's confusing because we have two cams at the shop. We have big cam. At front desk cam. Front desk cam. Cameron. Um, and 
I'm fairly certain that 90% of our customers think he's the owner and I'm 100% <laughs> okay with that because they're, you know, they're not coming and looking for me. Um, so we have big cam and then little cam with the K and then we have Dylan and then my father-in-law. Who's Bryce. is little cam? He's a, he's a, a mechanic. Yeah. He's a mechanic. Okay. So he, he does most of the engine work and then Dylan, he does a lot of engine work and then you know, race prep and chassis tune-ups and stuff. Really, really fortunate to have the team that we do. And Michelle, she's the shop mom, so she keeps us all in line, remembers our whose year anniversaries for, you know, how many, however many years the guys have worked there. And she brings treats and cake and pizza and makes sure <laughs> that we're all appreciated on our birthdays and anniversaries and Definitely uh, wow. has probably saved us from a lot of turnover. That's cool. I didn't. So. I didn't know. I you're gonna have to. I I probably met her, and I just don't. Yeah, I'm terrible with names and faces. So yeah. well, she's the only female. <laughs> yeah, but she know. she's in the front office, so sometimes you don't see her. I probably don't. I know I've seen her. I just I'm not sure if I could pick her out of a crowd. Yeah, my wife could. She's very good with faces, but I'm yeah. I'm not. I'm terrible yeah. with names and faces. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate yeah. it. I've again, I've uh, it's been fun getting to know you over the last couple of years. It's been fun watching your business grow, and um, I need you to show me some moto stuff. I'm going to get a moto bike here fairly soon, and just do a little bit more, just a little bit of track work, just to yeah. kind of broaden my horizons and and uh, cross train and just. Yeah. I, I love dirt bikes and for the longest time I've stayed away from tracks cause I'm kind of a, not a crowd person and the yeah. tracks have never really, I've never really been drawn to tracks cause you go there and you, then you're going to be riding with a lot of other people at the same time. And I got into dirt bikes to get away from people. And yeah. so, but now I feel like I'm at a point of my riding where it feels like this massive blind spot to me, you know, in just my general dirt bike skill is this huge blind spot where it's like, oh, there's this whole thing of track riding where you can learn so many different things. Mainly cornering is the one thing I'm just like, dude, I suck at cornering. Yeah, it, it really helps you to learn the terrain and learn uh, the, I guess, the capabilities of your bike track as far as traction on different, you know, different corners and uh, your breakaway points. And, um, but I get it. I, I don't have any logos or stickers on my truck at this point. Um, but when I did, I would show up at the track and I would be worried. Oh man, there, if anybody knows, you know, or if I don't go out and ride, like I know what I'm doing, like it, it's going to hurt my credibility as a shop owner. And I, and imagine that for me, you know, I built yeah. up this thing like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. And then, but I, I've never said I'm an expert. I certainly am not an expert. Yeah. I should have named us like the Moto Amateurs just to set the bar lower <laughs> for myself. Uh, but when you're out on the track, in your mind, you always think, "Oh, everybody's like everybody's eyes are on me. Like they're gonna see every mistake that I make, or every time that I do it, I jump and my front end's hanging way up high, or you know whatever it might be." But um, I uh, I've talked to Josh and uh, Shane Watts actually about um, doing some different classes just with uh me and the shop guys um at a track like on a off day like jordan river i know they're open on thursdays and that's not a good time to go and you know do a class but 
maybe a Tuesday or a Wednesday or, um, you know, uh, but to do a class with Shane or Josh at a track would be super beneficial. I'll, I'll pay. Let me know. Let me know when you're doing it and I will, I'll, I'll chip in. Well, we can definitely set something up. Well, that'd be great. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to cut you loose. Look, this is, this, this is when I put in the uh, bumper music here. This is how lazy I am on the podcast. If I start it right here, I won't even have to mix it in later. All I have to do is go drop this into a timeline export it out to mp3 and it'll be up in podcast land tomorrow morning oh, if, nice. it, if it wasn't after 10 o'clock i would i put it up tonight but uh this has been fun yeah so this is the second time you've been on the podcast the first time was a long time ago and With we had josh, josh yeah. we had josh here and you even walked in this room and said your room is smaller and i'm like well now we only have two people in here remember how crowded it was last i time? think it must have been the desk because you were sitting right there and there was a smaller desk in between us but yeah yeah uh, i have had to i've got to expand but I can't afford any homes because I've got to move out of Utah, apparently, to be able to afford it. Yeah. So, well, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming over. And uh, no, people thanks. can find you at MotoExperts.com, right? Yeah. MotoExperts. MotoExperts.com, M-O-T-O-X-P-E-R-T-S. And then uh, Facebook, Instagram, we are the MotoExperts.com or the MotoExperts. Yeah. It's fantastic. They have uh, the all like we said, full full service shop and Sherco dealer. So that's uh, pretty. Pr- he's pretty proud of that because he's the number two. He was the number one. Now he's the number two. Number two. Number two Sherco <laughs> yeah. dealer yeah. in the nation, which is pretty incredible. Go check out those motorcycles. I've done several reviews on the Shercos, and I only have one bad thing to say about them now, and I won't even tell you what that is. But everything else is super positive. So go to my YouTube channel and (laughs) go check that out. And until next time, leave a single track. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks.